So the next thing that I want to discuss with you guys here is the concept of progressing through a mesocycle by progressing sets week to week. And Eric, if I'm understanding your stance on this correctly, you don't so much have a problem with this in principle, more so you're not using this particular progression method for practical reasons. Would that be a fair characterization? Uh, what do you consider practical reasons? Ooh, so I will try to quote you here, but basically more variables that you have to manage over a mesocycle, losing out on some of that clear diagnostic tool that is load and rep progression. So basically the noise to signal ratio not being favorable. I think that's that's what I heard from you a couple of times. I Yeah, I would also say that if you are already at a high set volume, it's much more likely to push you into doing too much total work compared to, say, progressing loader reps. Yeah, sure. And I think Mike gave a pretty compelling response to that, or he outlined how he doesn't do that in his practice. And he has good ways to evaluate what average volumes you should be shooting for in a mesocycle. So assuming that that's not a problem. So what I'm trying to highlight here to kind of pinpoint the differences in your approaches is if that optimal volume amount for that person is 15 sets, the reason why you would not start out a mesocycle at 10 sets and then escalate over time up to 15 and maybe over that slightly to 17 or 18, like maybe Mike would do, is mainly for these practicalities, for these noise-to-signal ratio type issues that we talked about. Uh, I mean, honestly, I don't really have a, a huge issue with with where we ended it last time. You know, if you, if you have already established what someone's uh, appropriate volume is, um, moving from, you know, a few sets below that to a few sets above that over the course of a mesocycle, I don't really see as uh, necessarily, uh, I don't even have necessarily practical issues with that. Getting to that place, uh, actually determining where that where that volume is in the first place, I think um, might be a little harder using the system though. Okay, so why would you not increase sets week to week personally then? So, I mean, where we got to uh, yesterday, what, what was a, a version of set progression that I didn't have it, I didn't have any issue with. I, I mean, I, I don't have a, I don't think I have a problem with the concept of progressing sets. I have an issue with applying progressing sets in, in certain, in a certain manner that, that would, would cause problems. Eric, would you say it's like the more is always better approach and like, what's my MRV? If it's, if it's 25, then I'm a good person. If it's 30, I'm a great person. Let's shoot for the moon kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, obviously, I, I think um, I think the issue with with me has always been that it's very easy when you're progressing sets to get in the realm of doing. And again, this is this is I'm talking about progressing sets, not necessarily the RP system. You know, so progressing sets as, as a primary variable progression increases volume very very quickly. That, that's one example of it. Exactly. Um, you know the Just you know more. the correct yeah. So, um, I think I, I would be curious as to, I'm not, I don't know, uh, whether the best way to determine what your optimal volume is, is starting within a system where you already are progressing sets. Like what's one thing we got to is like the underlying assumption, Hey, we know what your optimal volume is, but, uh, if your metrics to establish what that are, um, are flawed and I'm not saying necessarily 
that that your approach is flawed, Mike. But if they are flawed, then that kind of throws the whole thing into a, a bit of a in, into, into question in my mind. Um, I would think if you don't know where your appropriate volume is, and you start with a system where you're progressing from somewhere to somewhere else, I think that would probably make it harder to find. Because um, then if you don't know what is likely to produce appropriate or, or good progress, um, and, we, and you lean on other metrics like a pump or uh, soreness, I think those metrics um, in the absence of, like, like th- those might lead you astray while per, or in a different direction or to a different magnitude uh, than what might produce optimal progress. So I, I don't know if necessarily having a set set volume for a while and hanging out there would uh, help you find what your optimal volume is in the first place, but I, but it is one less variable that is changing within a short time frame. Okay, Mike, so could we make this a bit more illustrative? So, I mean, of course, you talked about this already in some ways, but if you got a client, both of you got identical twins, and over time you figured out through experimentation that the person's optimal set number per week is 15 sets. So Mike, I would assume that if you got the person, then you would not start out at 15 sets, because if I understood you correctly, that would just expose them to needless fatigue and injury risk. So maybe it would start out at nine or 10 sets, and then over a mesocycle, you would escalate sets up gradually, and maybe you would finish at 15, or you would go over somewhat? Could I be- would definitely push it higher than 15, because the, I, 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 if I'm to understand you correctly, the 15 number of optimal volume you just said is a per mesocycle average which means yeah. that in order to get the best hypertrophy results, whatever I net average in the accumulation phase that I do for the variable volume progression, that would have to be the number 15. So if I started at 12, I would probably end something like at 18. Does that make sense? So that the average would in fact be the same. Right. And then, so if I'm understanding you correctly, your issue with doing 15 the whole time, even though that's the best on average, is that at certain times that's just doing too much for no good reason. And then at other times you're leaving gains on the table because you're doing less compared to what you could be doing and cashing in more gains. Is that a question to me? Uh, that's a question to Mike. So but you, so that's the issue with staying at the optimal volume is that sometimes you're doing less than what's optimal and sometimes you're doing more well i i i I didn't i I didn't follow that logic abel are you saying that so so i think we're expressing optimal volume eric is my assumption here and abel correct me if i'm wrong optimal volume is a per mesocycle average optimal volume so like you know your average number of sets per muscle group per week in this mesocycles accumulation phase was 15 uh and that can be 15 Mm -hmm. every single week or it can be variable and average to 15. so if I know that someone's average best volume results are 15, it is unlikely in my practice that I would start them at the beginning of a mesocycle, especially with new exercises, new repetition ranges after a deload, so on and so forth. It's unlikely I would start them at 15. I might start them a little bit lower for a couple of reasons, which would be measured uh, based on their various responses during the training session and after, like how the, you know, the amount of pump and fatigue they experience, how much soreness they get afterwards, what their recovery looks like. I would start a little bit lower than that, and I would progress in sets in an auto-regulatory fashion and probably end up somewhere just a little bit north of 15. So the average would still be the same, except I would take a little bit of a walk with them from a little bit below to a little bit above. No, I totally get that. I, I just didn't understand the, 
the critique of the concept of hanging around what is optimal because sometimes you're doing too little and too much. Because it's optimal per mesocycle. That doesn't mean it's optimal in the first week and optimal in the last week. Like it's, uh, you know, so for example, like 15 is the average best result. But if you zoom in and then you look at the fact that week one, you know, for example, just experientially produces like just a gargantuan amount of soreness. And you say, well, you know, based on uh, some other literature and some inference, we can say that, you know, this much soreness is maybe like a little bit counterproductive, just a little bit. I mean, it still produces great results. Um, and then it, it, last week, for example, of a mesocycle, you could say, you know, we have a whole deload to, to recover from this. And it's, it's shown pretty clearly that, you know, even if in the technical sense, functional overreaching doesn't work, that we can do considerably more than we're used to within a week's time. And given that we're backing off later, we can continue to see robust muscle growth through that week of recovery. Then you can say, okay, if we stop at the same number, 15, in the last week, you know, maybe we could have done 16 or 17 and actually continued that growth a little bit longer, given that it no longer has to be sustainable. Because every time you do 15 sets, 15 sets, 15 sets, week to week to week to week, you're operating under two assumptions. Eric, I think, uh, I'm cheating here, but uh, I, uh, I saw the uh, preview of your answer to how much should we train for the Jeff Nippert video coming out. I hope I'm not spilling any beans on this, but it was basically identical to my oh, answer. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's two, there's two, there's two factors. Every time you ask how much should I train at any one session, it's what's going to get your great stimulus now and what's going to set you up for great stimulus later. So that like mm. that second part is kind of just not really as, as big of a factor in the final week, let's say. So I would be comfortable going to 16 or 17 sets, uh, where I think that would result in more optimality over the accumulation phase in the entire mesocycle and maybe starting at 13 or 14 or something just to make a less extreme example. So while the average per mesocycle is still 15, and it's the average best, I think there may be a little bit of optimality just to be eked out and a little bit of extra safety, uh, especially on the front end, to just starting a little bit lower and ending, perhaps ending a little bit higher or uh, just doing an extra week of accumulation, whichever way you want to do, uh, you know, split that. Yeah, I, I, I understood all that. I think I just didn't understand the connection between, it, it doesn't matter. It's all good. Go ahead, Abel. Yeah, Eric. So question to you, if you have figured out someone's optimal volume level through trial and error, so you tried lower volumes, say 10 sets, 12 sets, you tried higher volumes, 18, 20 sets, and figured out that, okay, 15 seems to be good. Would you, after you have done a deload, you completed a couple of mesocycles already at that 15 set mark, would you start the person right away at 15 sets? Um, so if they were coming from a block where they were around 15 sets for multiple weeks and then took a deload, um, they would be able to get right back into that, that, that next block. If, if they wanted to stay at 15 sets, just fine. They wouldn't experience like gargantuan levels of soreness or anything like that. I think, um, there, I don't see any, any necessary, necessary downside to that. Um, you ease them into the block. If you're going into higher volumes by doing like an intro week. You could, you could stagger sets upward. Um, you can also just start the block with uh, slightly lower RPEs, lower loads, or whatever, met whatever metric you're using to do load prescription so that you're not, you know, have a close proximity to failure uh, in that first set. So I, I, I don't think we could, we could state that, you know, I think either, either way is fine. Like if you want to start around what your, your quote unquote optimal volume is, uh, and then use other variables to keep these stress levels low after a deload and then start progressing them. Uh, or you could start, or you could use sets to progress, uh, below from below your average to above it. Um, you know, I, I think, I think either one's perfectly reasonable in my opinion. Yeah. Right. And so, and this is where we come back to this. Is this just a practical concern or is this a principle based issue? 
if I'm understanding you correctly, you wouldn't necessarily see a problem, even though you wouldn't do it that way personally, you know, starting out only at nine sets or 10 sets and then slowly escalating up to 15 and maybe slightly higher to 17 or 18 sets. You wouldn't be concerned that in the beginning of a mesocycle, if you're only doing 10 sets or something like that, you're doing less than what would be optimal for those first couple of weeks. I think, uh, I mean, uh, one, one thing I have an issue with is that I do think that for some people, the amount of volume they can handle and recover from week to week is not necessarily close to what might be the ideal volume for them uh, in terms of inducing muscle growth. Um, so I think the concept of MRV is a useful cap. Like you, you can't do more than you can do <laughs> and recover from and have that be productive. So it can be kind of a uh, top end limiter. Um, but you can have someone who can handle a whole heck of a lot, but it's, it's more than they necessarily would need to grow. Um, so I, I guess to me, like the only problem would be if, if someone is can handle plenty of volume, but they're starting quite low and they're working towards a, what's optimal. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're going to accumulate fatigue very quickly. So those first couple of weeks may be wasted, uh, not wasted, but less effective. And we are like, you know, picking up minutia here. So I, I would think in, in, in the case where someone is pretty robust to handling the volume they need to grow effectively, um, that might not be needed to taper them in. Um, someone else who handles, who can't handle very much volume, um, then, then I think that would be smart to, to kind of taper them in. Uh, I think, I think it depends on where you need to get to and in the individual context of, uh, where you have been, you know, how, how do you respond after a deload? Um, like I, I don't experience most people to get very sore going from like, say, you know, a week of doing 10 sets to then going into 15 sets if they were habitually doing around 15 sets. Um, so the, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm not too concerned with the, the, the concept of, of, of starting slightly below, um, and getting slightly above it. I think that it could potentially force you to deload more frequently. Um, and then if you kind of start to think about the, the amount of time spent, um, I don't know if that's true, but I'm speculating here. I'm just trying to think through it to see if I have any objections. You know, like if if you start to accumulate fatigue pretty quickly as you go uh, high in sets, you know, you spent, let's say, three weeks of a six-week mesocycle working up to what's optimal, and then you're there, and then you go beyond beyond it and you accumulate fatigue quickly, you might be spending, you know, half the block below what's optimal and then forcing a deload earlier, and then you have to do that again, um, you know, that that might over time result in, in slower, slower gains. Um, I think I don't, there's not like solid research to back that up. I think there was a study that recently came out, uh, on, on runners. So this isn't again, super, super, uh, helpful. And it was actually on overreaching, uh, and they discriminated it by proportion of type two fibers. And again, these are, these are runners. So none of them had a high proportion, but, uh, some had more than others. And they found that, uh, the group, uh, it was easier to overreach in the group that had a higher proportion of fast twitch fibers and they overreached earlier. And interestingly enough, overreaching, uh, produced slightly worse gains in the group that, that didn't overreach. Um, we were reviewing that in mass. It's coming out in just a couple days. So those who are, 
subscribers and listening to this, you can check it out. So I, I imagine there's parallels with resistance training, but I'm, I'm not, we can't make any assumptions related to that, um, you know, that it applies to resistance training. So I'm not necessarily, I, I don't know if we should be trying to overreach yet. I think there's, there's a potential cost, may or may not be a benefit, might shake out to being the same. Um, so I think that that's one way to look at it. I just, I don't think we should have large extreme variations, but that's not what we're talking about. So I kind of talk myself in circles there to basically say, I don't think it matters. Gotcha. Great. Okay. So Mike, is it something that you do see in your own practice that's when someone has been doing 15 sets habitually for a while, that when they do a deload and then they begin a new mesocycle, if they just jump into 15 sets right away, that they just get violently sore and things are just really falling apart? Or what do you see there? Yeah, more of that than the, what Eric seems to pick up on. Though the way I practice deloading is a much more significant reduction in volume and intensity uh, based initially on the work of Andy Fry um, and his quote on the, is probably the, I would say maybe the world's expert anyway, used to be on overreaching and fatigue accumulation. His, his uh, direct quote was when you put on the brakes, put them on hard. So I think that there's a poor trade-off if you're deloading with a still relatively high volume and intensity because um, it's pretty close to impossible to lose any adaptations uh, that are meaningful, like muscle size, for example, or strength during even a week of not training. And there are some benefits to doing some limited training, uh, technique preservation and some metabolic preservation, maybe a little bit of muscle retention added, just a tiny bit. But um, anything beyond, I would say, definitely beyond 50% of a combination of volume load and relative effort, then what you're usually doing is probably too much to deload with. Um, not in the sense that it's deleterious, but in the sense that anything north of that 50% is probably just extra work you could be not doing and recovering more profoundly. Um, and probably after that week of doing very little work, you're probably a little bit more sensitive to muscle gain and probably in a considerably lower fatigue state. Um, and those things uh, tend to actually correlate with each other. So for example, as you do volume for a very long time, you tend to see fiber conversion and behavior of muscle fibers from faster twitch behavior to slower twitch behavior over chronic exposure to high volumes. If you can interrupt that process periodically, the fibers actually renorm to some extent to faster twitch behavior, which actually means they get more muscle growth out of every single wave you send at them. But if you consistently do a very, very high amount of volume or just even a consistent amount of volume and not deviate much from that through deloads, active rest phases, so on and so forth, maybe even some low volume strength phases or maintenance phases, which end up having as uh, muscle fibers that start to behave more like, slightly more like fast, slower twitch fibers. And then they actually uh, very likely hypertrophy less, but slower twitch fibers are excellent at fatigue management and excellent recovery. So you would expect someone who consistently trains for a long exposure without much variation in the training to not get very beat up, not get very sore in a reintroduction of relatively higher volumes again, if they never went down that fast, because they don't have that fiber reconversion occurring nearly to the same extent, among other factors. Yeah. And um, I mean, of course, I could throw it back to Eric and, hey, Eric, what do you think of that? But I, what I'm thinking now is that at this point, this is kind of abstract, kind of theoretical. I mean, in a way, we're arguing over what happens on a cellular level inside the muscles. So I guess it would be hard to really prove within this debate, at least, who is right and who isn't. So kind of a, a philosophical question to both of you, and I'm curious what you'll say is, would there be a way to like really test this objectively? I mean, would 
doing a, a training study where we do a DEXA at the end of it and just me- measure muscle growth. Would that be the best way? Or, I mean, we could test strength, but then of course there is always the consideration of that not necessarily being the best proxy for hypertrophy. So yeah, like what would be a good way to test this out? Uh, what do you think, uh, Mike? I think it's actually very straightforward. So you do is there's plenty of opportunities to do studies, plenty numerically, not statistically, uh, studies of 16-week duration. So it's pretty common in the, in the published literature to see 16-week training studies. Right? It's not easy. Um, a lot of times it happens in other places, not the United States, because um, you know the U.S. is um, in a semester system for university studies, and a lot of times, like sort of like after 10 weeks, people just straight up disappear from your study. Um, I don't know how New Zealand works, Eric, but I'm, I'm sure you guys struggle with the same kind of recruitment, re- not recruitment, retention issues. Um, but there are studies that come out relatively often at 16 week training studies. Sometimes you see, you know, well, the Barbalo stuff turned out to be fake. I was going <laughs> to drop that, but who knows what they're studying over there. But like, you know, 20, there's 20 week studies sometimes, sometimes you even see 24 week, but let's say uh, 16 weeks is very easy uh, or very straightforward, right? So you take a 16 week training study and you arrange it into uh, you know, four uh, mesocycles of four weeks each. And one of the, you know, split into two groups. One of the groups does essentially the same average volume for the entire 16 weeks, let's say, or maybe with a deload halfway through or something, just to make it fair. Uh, and then another group uh, goes up in waves. It goes up uh, over four weeks and then back down a little bit, then up again over four weeks, then back down and up again and back down. And there you go. There's your test. It's very, very straightforward. Yeah. So <laughs> first, the comment about like ease of research, like if it's, uh, you know, spring break destroys most studies in the States. Um, as the summer break as does the holidays so most of the time you're dealing with university students so like um same same problems occur outside of the states we have interesting issues at uh aut because like we do research um at the national training center which is great because we have all these connections to national sporting organizations we have uh weightlifting clubs track and field clubs swimming clubs etc but it's not a campus so if you want to get embedded with a sports team or work with athletes uh, or collaborate with High Performance Sport New Zealand, amazing. If you want to do a basic resistance training study on recreationally trained lifters, um, you can't walk across the street to the undergraduate uh, exercise science class and recruit people. So we, it's it's difficult. We have to get a lot of uh, a lot of word out on the street, if you will, which basically means Instagram and and uh, these days. So, uh, and nonetheless. It is difficult to do studies that are, there's a reason why most studies are eight weeks, but certainly not infeasible. And exactly what Mike said, you would just take two groups that did the same amount of volume over 16 weeks, have one train uh, at, at a certain average volume with, you know, a, a deload in the middle. And the other group could do, uh, you know, two two blocks where they started below and got above it. And, uh, you know, so the the, the total volume over the course of 16 weeks, the average volume for each of the two mesocycles uh, were the same, and then you just measure hypertrophy. Um, and to kind of go back to the, the comment about uh, like like deloading, I, I don't take any issue with a more aggressive deload. I think that's that's what you have to do if you use Mike's system. Like if you work up to a level of volume that is beyond what is optimal for you, it will probably be pretty challenging and it will probably be more fatiguing. So it doesn't surprise me at all that that Mike has observed in his practice that coming back from a more aggressive deload to a higher volume than he would normally start with would cause a lot of soreness. I think that that would be the expected observation. Um, 
And for me, when I, most of the time, my deloads are a, at most a 50% reduction in volume, uh, that, that, and I, I wouldn't see that. So I, I don't think that that should, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I don't think those anecdotes are actually different observations. I think they're, um, contained within this, the, 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 the more normal training system each one of us typically uses. Hey guys, just a 20 second interruption. If you're interested in working together with me and having me in your corner as a coach for your fat loss and muscle building goals, you can read up on the services I offer at ablessd.com or you can email me on the address in the show description. That's it. Let's continue with the show. Great. So in the meantime, there is one more point, maybe two, but potentially just one more point that I want to cover here. And that is the concept of fatigue accumulation. And I heard you guys clash over this a little bit on the Revive Stronger podcast. But Mike, I heard you talk about this um, on that podcast as well, but also on various other podcasts, that fatigue accumulates over the course of a mesocycle, that you get higher and higher rates of fatigue, you only have so much time to really induce a meaningful stimulus for muscle growth. And Eric, so what I'm wondering is, are you thinking about this in the same way that fatigue accumulates over the course of a mesocycle? I mean, you get fatigued, of course, but is it something that goes from a lower rate of fatigue in the beginning of a mesocycle to a much higher rate of fatigue at the end of a mesocycle? Or is it something that kind of just stays constant and then sometimes you have to manage that kind of as a just-in-case policy with a deload? Or how do you like to think about this? Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, we clashed a little bit about this on the Revive Stronger. And I think it's just because we apparently meant different things. Like in the uh, the original article that we wrote a um, letter to the editor about, there was a claim that... Uh, Higher loads caused more fatigue than lower loads when sets were matched, um, which I think part of that was just uh, we misinterpreted what they'd written. Uh, but then we got into the discussion. Uh, it, it, what Mike meant was that higher loads uh, cause more, you know, tissue stress, um, which which isn't fatigue. So uh, I, I think that's probably why we had that clash. We're more so talking across. Sub, it's a subcomponent of fatigue. It's not the entire picture. Sure, and. and and of course, I, I don't think you would argue that you know just inherently on a set by set basis that f that fatigue is always higher. Like I, I don't actually think you'd get more tissue stress from a one RM than a than a five RM uh, because there's not just a peak component, but there's a total stress component to the tissue um, um, within the hypertrophy range. I would argue that outside of it, it gets more nuanced. Sure, and uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's difficult. To, I, I, I don't think we can really. I, mean, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not confident that a that a six RM is 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 going to cause more tissue stress than than a, than a twelve RM, depending on the movement. I mean, it's definitely heavier. The the, the peak tissue stress will be higher, but um, yeah, I mean, it's not like we can take injury data that says powerlifters get hurt more and be like, therefore, twelve RM is less injurious than six. We know that having to do the bench squat and deadlift and always progressing load and training to have your one one RM go up is higher, but. Um, that that's uh, I think that that's that, that's probably why we were disconnecting on the revive stronger one. As far as fatigue, I think this is something that people talk about a lot, and because we subjectively experience it, but when we actually study it, we need to be a little more specific. Like, are we talking about muscle damage? Uh, are we talking about 
um, central fatigue? Are we talking about peripheral fatigue? Um, and I think typically when you're doing progressive training, especially the more specific it is, uh, fatigue will accumulate and will be a barrier to, uh, to doing more or, or to doing productive training, I should say, effective training. Um, but I think when you're, when you're talking about resistance training uh, for hypertrophy, where there's a bit of a disconnect between, like, we, like you said, it's, it's difficult to know if we're actually making optimal progress or not. And what, the way we're training is not uh, as it, it's lacks a certain amount of specificity because we're trying to get a structural change, a uh, collection of adaptations that result in the, the appearance of higher muscle size. Um, I don't necessarily think that fatigue will always accumulate in a predictable pattern uh, unless you do things like uh, create relatively large excursions in, in, in training load. Uh, and I, when I say training load, I, I don't mean the load on the bar. I mean the total training stress. So, um, yeah, like the way that fatigue is a problem for hypertrophy training is when you cause large amounts of muscle damage, um, that is probably less of an issue, but it is the feedback loop that happens. So we have seen in, in a few studies that when there's a large presence of muscle damage, you get a reduction in central drive. So therefore, you can't even recruit the fibers you're trying to train. So you don't want to produce high levels of muscle damage because that can actually be a barrier to hypertrophy. Um, but small levels of muscle damage, even muscle damage that um, produces soreness, uh, may or may not be a problem to train in the face of that uh, because it, if it is not re resulting in central fatigue, then it is pretty individual fibers. There's plenty of other fibers that are able to produce force, can be trained and, and, and you know, be effectively hypertrophied. I'm not saying, hey, when you're sore, just go train. Um, I don't necessarily think, uh, like, I'm not, I'm not, not speaking in, in like, in, uh, in high magnitudes of, of damage here. But really what we're trying to avoid is central, uh, is, is reductions in central drive. Um, peripheral fatigue, glycogen depletion, stuff like that. Um, it will also res result in, in the central governor going, nah, I'm not going to be recruiting that. Um, so, but that's, that's typically temporary and typically not an issue in, you know, eating enough and training with, with not a super, super high frequency and high volume. So I think we do need to be specific about the fatigue we're talking about. I think to kind of paint with a broad brush and say, hey, if you're doing overloading training, fatigue will accumulate and you have to deload to let go of it. When you start to ask, okay, well, what fatigue is currently accumulated? How long does it take to go away? Which is a problem for hypertrophy training specifically? And therefore, when and to what degree do you have to do it? That's when it gets a little murky. Um, you mentioned and Andrew Fry. Fry has done a lot of amazing work. A lot of his work on overreaching is doing like 10 by 3 RMs or, or 10 by 1 RM. If you look at a lot of the overreaching protocols in the research, it's pretty nuts. Um, and I think absolutely a lot of those concept uh, apply when we're trying to completely revitalize force production and then see it peak at its highest. Um, there's some good work by, by Hayden Pritchard, who's done work on tapering and powerlifters. Um, and, uh, you know, having a volume reduction of 50 to 70% uh, while maintaining or, or only slightly reducing uh, load uh, on the bar is is the way to get your your performance to peak, and that that's a pretty substantial reduction, and that's that's how you do a taper for powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting. But we don't necessarily know 
what that looks like, what those dynamics are for hypertrophy training. Yeah. Uh, Mike, anything in there that you feel like reacting to? Or I can pick out a couple of points, suggest a couple of points. Yeah, I can speak on a few things. I feel like uh, I am quite confident that fatigue is predictable. Um, it is not necessarily predictable in specific magnitude, but it is predictable in its directionality over the course of time during a mesocycle. Um, so, for example, during the construction of a mesocycle for a hypertrophy training that I would consider relatively logical, you expect volumes to at least not go down week to week to week. Let's say they're either stable or rising, but we can just say stable to keep things simple. And uh, in the pursuit of greater and greater lifted loads and repetitions, we are probably, uh, in many cases, reducing the reps in reserve over the course of the accumulation. I think if we don't ever reduce the reps in reserve, we have a measurement problem as to uh, uh, to answer the question is, of how, are we training hard enough? I think if you don't approach failure every now and again, you actually can never really answer the question of, are you training hard enough to get your best gains? Um, so I think that because any week of a mesocycle is hard, it's overloading, it contributes to fatigue, some of which may spill over into the next week. And also because on average, the weeks get harder over time as you continue to train, not easier, uh, that I think fatigue accumulates. Now, it may be that in week three, you have a little bit less fatigue somehow because you slept more, ate more, something like that, than week two. Uh, but in week four, you probably will have at least as much fatigue as you had in week three, probably more. Like if you're doing, let's say, a 12-week accumulation phase, just for shits and giggles, it is to me highly unlikely that you will have a lower fatigue in week eight than you do in week four. I think it'll be substantially higher, un unless you are probably not training hard enough um, to optimize your gains. So I think that fatigue predictably accumulates. There's a directionality of accumulation there that is known. It is up. And I think that fatigue can be measured quite accurately just with performance. So if you're continuing to hit PRs, all of the summative factors of fatigue, many of which Eric mentioned, central drive, peripheral factors, local muscle damage, they seem not to summate to enough to prevent you from continually exposing yourself to greater and greater stimuli. And now there is, as Eric points out, very, very um, uh, eruditely on occasion, not a direct connection between performance in the medium term and an imposition of hypertrophic stimuli. And there certainly can be a disconnect there, but not for long, right? So as a coach, for example, if someone is adding five pounds to their hack squat every week for like 10 weeks straight, and they ask me, do I have a problem growing muscle? They're talking about themselves. They say, look, I, coach, I don't think my quads are getting bigger. It really strains credulity for me to say, yes, there's a problem here. <laughs> Just wait longer. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, wait until you're hack squatting 800 for 10. And, and then if you have skinny legs, then you can just fire me and become Superman. <laughs> so, um, so I think that uh, in, a, in a situation in which performance starts to falter uh, and either flatline. But so, so here's the thing, like uh, sometimes performance flatlines during a mesocycle, but then it goes back up. Right. Like we have bad workouts. What we do yeah. a lot of times at RP is like we need it's a good heuristic. If it's not religion, not a thing, nothing we do is religion. It's not the method. There's no method. Right. Uh, one heuristic we use is a two, two session, two contiguous session underperformance. So like in Monday and Thursday, you do 
So hack squats and leg presses respectively. If you had a bad workout Monday, eh, shit happens. If you had another bad workout Thursday, eh, and then you go to basically uh, more personal factors, subjective factors, like how do you feel? And if the person sort of does the whole fatigue checklist, uh, which is, you know, there's a bunch of them that have been validated through various sports, like I feel like the world is coming down around me. I'm having trouble sleeping. My appetite sucks. I'm sore everywhere all the time. My joints hurt. You're kind of like, you know, I kind of feel like we're at the upper end of volume, and that is at least significantly contributing to our uh, underperformance. And then the decision is made that we're going we're gonna to probably deload, right? But if everything feels good and you have one underperformance, I think you can try again, right? And then sometimes performance continues to go up and just keeps going up and everything's great. So MRV, uh, one of the ways to conceptualize it, because it's a l- relatively broad concept if you really zoom in, is when you're no longer making performance PRs, you've probably hit MRV. Probably, not always, right? So what I would say is you can continue to train. And it doesn't have to be volume accumulation. It can be the same volume every week, but you just keep adding weeks and keep adding five pounds to the bar, two and a half, or a rep here and there. And if you're still making PRs, you're probably doing pretty well. And it's very likely you're causing robust hypertrophy because we, we do know that hypertrophy occurs in the higher end of the volume range from which you derive robust strength gains, not the lower end as much, right? So if you're doing a relatively high volume and you're getting, uh, you know, week to week to week, you're able to match or exceed performance, specifically exceed it. I think you're doing really well for yourself. Are there arguments to pull back before that? Absolutely, and they're very good ones sometimes. But I think if I think this is where Eric and I tend to agree considerably, perhaps 100%, is like once you're getting weaker, you're done. <laughs> like consistently weaker, you're done. Uh, you you got to deload. You got to work something out. You got to drop a lot of fatigue. So so that's how I would approach the concept of fatigue. I think it, uh, if you're training really hard uh, over time, weeks and weeks and weeks, your performance is going to reflect. It's uh, is going to be the general arbiter of how much fatigue you're carrying total from all sources. And once your performance begins to falter and then potentially even dip, then it's probably, especially if it's a repeated thing, especially in the presence of other factors that uh, say, look, I'm on the higher end of the volume I typically do. I feel like shit everywhere else. Yeah, you know, that's probably uh, an excessive amount of accumulated fatigue and needs to be brought down for further productive training to occur. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mike. That was great. So, Eric, what do you think about that? I mean, like Mike said, it's not the method, it's not sure. incontestable, but what do you think about that general kind of heuristic where, okay, if you had two shit training sessions in a row, then that's a strong indication that you're accumulating too much fatigue and it's time to deload. I think all this stuff makes a lot of sense when you're uh, a trained lifter who's been 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 in the gym with your body and, and paying attention for a while because you have a sense of where you probably should be. Um, even those who are very, you know, ego driven or very fearful that they, they are aware to some degree often like, Hey, I'm pushing it too hard, but Hey, I like to do that. Or, you know, I'm being overly conservative, but I'm very risk adverse. I think the, uh, the problem though, and what's pretty wild is that, uh, when you aren't operating off some of those more collected experiences, I guess you could say, um, this stuff is a lot less clear. So there was a pretty cool systematic review by Grandow. Uh, this year. And it was on overreaching uh, functional and non-functional and overtraining in, in resistance training. Because Mike's 100% right. The real way we measure fatigue uh, or, or overreaching is, did your performance drop? If there was a decrease in performance during the attempted overloading training, that means that you your fatigue outpaced your adaptations to handle it and, and, and adapt. And the crazy thing in this study is out of the 22 studies that were in, included in Grandow, uh, and these are all studies where the researchers attempted to overreach or overtrain the participants. Out of in ten of the twenty-two studies, they they didn't achieve it. 
the, the subjects did not actually see a decrease in performance. Eric, I'm, Eric, so, I'm super sorry to cut you off real quick. So I'm actually adding to your point in much of Fry's research, he actually failed to be able to generate an overreaching protocol that resulted in a decrease in performance. Like they've done 10 sets of singles where the guys just got stronger afterwards. Sorry, please continue. My, my apologies. No, no, no. You don't need to apologize at all. That's and I, and Fry's work. A lot, a lot of it was uh, was in the systematic review. It was some of the, the better work in it, in my opinion. And um, so it's it's. Uh, I guess there, there's a couple ways to take that. One is, is the more myopic view of see fatigue is totally unpredictable. Um, but I don't think that's accurate. I just think that you really do need that background information and to have someone who's reasonably well-trained and who's been paying attention. If you just take a collection of, of weightlifters and you throw them into a standardized protocol that should be overreaching, it's it's not going to do what you think it does. I, I remember, and, and this is a thing that coaches deal with, because a long time before I felt competent enough to write programs, I would take programs that existed and think that they were a good uh, piece to fit into the history of someone. And I specifically remember someone doing, um, I, I want to say, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the, the crazy uh, squat program. It's not Shiko. That's the name of the coach of all the different, small off. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're perfect. Yeah. So I had someone run small off and they, they didn't think much of it. Like, yeah, you know, I used to do a little more than that or, or like I've had harder programs than that. And you know, and that broke my brain because the internet told me that was a high volume, high intensity, crazy program that, that would, would overreach you. And, and, uh, if you survived it, you get stronger. So I think that's just a really important thing to realize is that, um, like you, you need to kind of have, that that background information if you if you are doing this on yourself and you just kind of throw yourself into a a certain amount of volume if you make assumptions about what is overreaching or what isn't it's not that predictable and i think i'm going to steal this analogy from mike t because a lot of the times we think of this as a a equation with two separate factors there is the amount of work i'm putting through it and then the amount of fatigue it, it causes me and there is a, a known number that is static of what i can recover from but it's more like a sink where you're turning the uh the training load is how how much uh, faucet pressure you're putting on and it doesn't just fill up you know the drain is basically the constant pace of you recovering from that training stress but as you turn that faucet up the drain can get bigger and the sink can get higher depending on what you put through it. And you can make very large changes in your ability to handle volume. Um, so I think this kind of goes back to my point before is that MRV can absolutely constrain what you should probably be doing, but it can be increased a great deal beyond what might be an appropriate training volume to, to hypertrophy or, or to max out that adaptation. Um, there are not necess- There are distinct things in the body that that, that deal with uh, recovery from work, repair of muscle damage that don't seem to be associated with or predictive of how much you will grow from that same work. So I think that's just something people need to understand: is that uh, working towards MRV. I think in the context of what most bodybuilders are adapted to and train with and, you know, with a, a more conservative approach to working towards MRV, I don't have an issue with um, because it should still be within the realm of what's appropriate. Uh, but there are some people, if they just keep adding sets until they actually see a decline in performance, they could be far beyond uh, what, what would might be optimal. And we're not dealing with the hypothetical of going from 10 to 16 anymore. Um 
which is kind of what we we operated on like oh we're both on the same page like we agree but i think i think interpretation of this is very important yeah and mike maybe you agree with the idea that how you exactly go about your progression model will influence how quickly this fatigue accumulates over a mesocycle so maybe in the way that you like to set up this mesocycle where you start out with easier training and lower volumes and then you go up in volume as well as training closer to failure quite aggressively that maybe in that paradigm that fatigue accumulation process happens a bit more rapidly is that something you would agree with i actually wouldn't abel i think that if eric and i designed two mesocycles eric's mesocycle always for every week did uh two reps in reserve and every week did 15 sets and my mesocycle started at three and ended at one rep in reserve and started at 12 and ended at 18. I think my prediction is that the folks would overreach at roughly the same time because while it is easy to see how fatigue skyrockets in the latter half of my mesocycle, uh, we are not factoring in the fact that very little fatigue accumulates in the first half of my mesocycle, whereas more fatigue accumulates in the first half of Eric's mesocycle but uh, less uh, relatively accumulates uh, to mine in the second half. So I think the averages per mesocycle averages tell you almost everything you need to know about how long that accumulation phase can run until you overreach and your performance declines. And that where you transgress from uh, to where, as long as it's the same average, I think doesn't really uh, change uh, the picture hardly at all. I would, I would say that's probably true with most mesocycle lengths. And if you if you had relatively tight range on where you went and where you got to. But I mean, you could also imagine that same example, Mike, where the mesocycle was longer. The average was, let's say, 20. And you went from 10 to 30. I do think you'd accumulate fatigue faster because the whole time you're doing 10 to 15 sets, you're actually getting worse at recovery because you're right. You're not accumulating fatigue because it's far below what you would be able to handle, but you are detraining your ability to handle work. So you're bringing down the ceiling, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think you're talking about going from exactly what you said, you know, you know, a much tighter range. But I think that this is a question of magnitudes and lengths and the full range rather than just the average, because there's a difference between, you know, an average that is 15 plus or minus uh, five versus an average that is 15 plus or minus 10. Yeah. I, uh, my range, my range would just be from minimum effective volume to maximum recoverable on the volume side, and uh, on the uh, relative intensity side, a relative effort side, it would be something like three or four reps in reserve, all the way to zero reps in reserve. And I think within that range, where you get very good adaptations, then I don't think those extremity problems present themselves uh, as much. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I. You know, such large transgressions are, I think, uh, have to be imposed top down artificially, and both the back end and the front end are not effective. And I would also say <laughs> that um, in order to test those properly, by say adding a set a week or two sets a week, the mesocycle accumulation phase length for even the static one that has kept an average of twenty, but go, or, you know, the entire time it actually just kept at twenty, the entire time. I think that's like a sixteen or twenty week mesocycle, and I suspect that in order to not accumulate fatigue too soon with that, your relative efforts would have to be modulated so greatly, uh, especially on the back end, so easy that I don't think you would be getting robust hypertrophy, which is, which is I, I will pepper this in, maybe a little bit of uh, interesting insight for some of the listeners. 
I think, personal personal opinion, maybe we'll see what Eric thinks, but I think studies on hypertrophy and strength that last 16 to 20 weeks, when if you read the study, the researchers made no attempt to reduce fatigue or modulate it in any way in, in various, at various time points. There's no deloading done, uh, uh, interspersed into the study. I think any practical implications you can take out of that are incredibly limited because nobody can fucking survive that much actual hard training unless they're a complete beginner and or genetically gifted at surviving training, which probably also means they're incredibly small, incredibly slow twitch, incredibly low motivation to train, incredibly low recruitment to drive ability, and probably will never amount to anything in strength or size sport anyway. So I think that you know when we're looking at such insane times spent without any deloading, I think we're looking at studies that tell us much less than we'd like to know about whatever's being studied. So I don't know. I think, I, I, I able do you mind if I comment on that point since Mike said I agree <laughs> no, with my no, opinion? <laughs> sure. Um, I think that's actually, there, there's, there's two ways to do with that. Like, oh, someone, the 16 week study, we can't take anything from that because I know in the real world, if we train hard for 16 weeks, uh, you're going to be wrecked or injured or, you know, it, or it wasn't progressive, you know. Um, and that that's that's one way. And I think at the very least, we know it, it does seem to have a disconnect with the real world. Um, but another thing to realize is that something like 90% of studies are three days per week. And I think this is a great way of looking at how manipulating variables other than volume seems to change some of the rules that we may think are, are relatively set in stone or maybe set in sand. I mean, uh, neither one of us are claiming this is religion. So that might have been an unfair characteristic characterization, excuse me. Um, if you're training as hard as you possibly can on only one or two or three days per week, and you came from a training background when you got recruited for the study where you're training pretty hard four to six days per week, it's going to be substantially easier. Um, and I think that, that that's, that's, that's a good point. Uh, can we, can we take nothing from that study or does that make us realize that progressive training isn't necessarily always accumulating fatigue in the way we're used to. That's not necessarily an argument to train three days per week because I'm not saying that that study was necessarily the most optimal gains you could have made. But more often, studies do force people to train to failure. And if you've ever ran studies on recreational people who come in, they'll, they'll say, this is the hardest I've, I've trained. That's, that's the most common response. Um, you do get dropouts in studies. You do get people who don't keep going. And those people are often not uh, contained in the kind of awareness of the study. It's not something that the researchers emphasize. You know, we, yeah, we recruited 30 people, 22 finished. And it's like, hold the phone. You know, that that was a substantial dropout rate you had. Um, so I think that that could also be something to consider. And if you look at most research, you get the impression and you look at the really, really hardcore studies that people can handle, you know, eight to 12 weeks, maybe not 16 in many cases of, of pretty hard training. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that's how they should train long-term. And that is a limitation of the majority of training research is it tells us about a couple to, to four mesocycles 99% of the time, uh, if we're talking four weeks. Um, so, cause most of them are 18, eight to 16 weeks long. So I think, I think we do struggle with extrapolating that data to longer term approaches, we, we just don't necessarily know. Um, so, and, and one thing to, to be very charitable to Mike here, I think if we, there's a possibility that overreaching uh, could be beneficial, that there is delayed hypertrophy. We don't have any data to support that it is, but what if it is happening in the next mesocycle? You know, what if you take a study uh, where you where you try to overreach a bunch of people and it didn't seem to do much in the, the 16 week study, 
But when they went back to their their training that they did on their own, that they would probably necessarily drop their their overall effort on because they're pretty beat up from the study. How do we know they didn't have great growth that that, that mesocycle? You know, as kind of a delayed effect from what they did. Uh, so I think if someone does want to, you know, carry the baton that Mike and I are are offering forth and research some of these uh, average versus um, or fixed average versus uh, uh, ascending average volumes or wants to look at overreaching in, in a hypertrophy model, they really have to take those considerations into account uh, and to figure out how to not, not miss those pieces that they're actually trying to study. All right. Well, guys, uh, I think that will be the final word for today. And I think you have been extremely generous with your times, both of you. So I want to thank you so much for doing this. And Mike, I know you got to run. So anything that you would like to plug before you go? Yeah, uh, I only have one thing to plug. Um, Renaissance Periodization on YouTube. We're doing the YouTube game now, which means we put out at least three informational videos, usually long form. Uh per week on the YouTube channel. So Renaissance Periodization on YouTube, if you want to learn stuff, it's kind of cool. We have a bunch of playlists and we have a whole roadmap of tons of videos we're going to produce. So if you'd like to hear me blab about getting jacked and strong, and uh, uh, there it is. Awesome. And Dr. Helms? Hey, we got a mask coming out, probably if it already came out when you're listening to this. So if you're keen on learning about similar stuff to what you'd watch his YouTube channel for, but you want to pay for it, sounds like a bad proposition, uh, then definitely sign up for Mass. But no, and much more seriously, uh, all my content you can find at 3dmusclejourney.com. Links to my books, blogs, podcasts I do, all the good stuff. All right, guys, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if based on what you've heard from me, if you've been following my work for a while, you would be interested in working together with me, having me as a coach and someone who would guide you through to achieve your muscle building and fat loss goals, then you can read up on my services at ablessd.com. You can email me at the address that is linked in the show description and if you just enjoy listening to these episodes then i would really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the sustainable self-development podcast on itunes that will be actually beneficial for everybody because i will be able to get more high quality guests on the podcast and that will be fun for you it will be fun for me so please do this a little bit of favor for me so that would be pretty much it thank you for hanging around up until now and we will hear each other in the next episode